Pushkin. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Typically, if a car crashes because there's, say, a faulty drivetrain, we can point to the engineering and say there's a problem with this system. With these adaptive systems, they're reacting and learning and responding to human society and human behavior. And we're still developing the scientific tools to understand what it means to have those feedback loops. Algorithms are adaptive systems. They're pieces of computer code that shape many aspects of our digital lives. They're closely guarded trade secrets and powerful tools. And they're regularly blamed for amplifying our cultural and political divisions. We often hear technologists say, we couldn't have known. And the idea that they haven't turned those lenses on questions impacting the common good. It's a scandal if they haven't asked the question. It's a scandal if they've asked it and they're not telling us what they found. This is the fourth chapter in our solvable series examining solutions for America's polarization problem. Today, we're talking about social media algorithms and how to deal with them. You can think of social media companies as fancy restaurants. The cooks behind the most successful ones often don't want to reveal their recipes, but customers have a right to know what they're eating. It turns out we've been down this road before. The good housekeeping labs started just around the turn of the century. People were concerned about what was in their food, what was in other products. This was before the creation of the FDA. And so people subscribed to good housekeeping. Those labs would test common products and tell people if they were safe or not. Ultimately, the federal government stepped in to regulate food safety, including disclosure requirements around ingredients, nutrients, and calories. Similarly, establishing algorithmic safety and accountability will take a variety of players. I want to live in a world where digital power is both guided by evidence and accountable to the public. 
Nathan Matias teaches at Cornell University and leads the Citizens and Technology Lab. The problems of regulating algorithms are solvable. My co-host Ann Applebaum spoke with Nathan Matias. Here's their conversation. So Nathan, tell me, <laughs> what's an algorithm? Algorithms can be thought of as a recipe, a series of steps often programmed into a computer that determine how a machine behaves. But the challenge, as any cook often finds, is that when you put them out into the world, especially something of sufficient complexity, uh, they often behave in ways that are different from what we expect. Can you just take a minute to explain how that's problematic and why? Why should we care that algorithms are deciding which piece of content you see on Facebook or which, uh, which video you're being recommended on YouTube? Algorithms happen at all levels from exactly how the electrons go from one point to another on the internet to the much more high-level things that uh, we think about in our direct experience. For example, an algorithm determines what your email inbox decides is spam. An algorithm uh, on Twitter decides which faces to show when it's displaying a photo. And algorithms also, and critically, uh, make decisions about what information to prioritize when showing us feeds on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, when determining which ads we see, which ads we don't. And those are often uh, some of the uses of algorithms that people worry about in, in society and policy circles. YouTube makes a recommendation system to help us find the videos we like, and suddenly we're worrying about recommendations of extremism. Microsoft makes a fun chat assistant that will have interesting conversations with you, and now we're worrying about it learning racism and hatred. So we find that although we have these simple building blocks of an algorithm that an engineer can imagine, they often uh, grow to be something larger than we might initially imagine. I've written and others have written about the problem of algorithms on Facebook favoritizing um, or preferring content and posts that are emotional, that are negative, that are divisive. You know, there's been an argument that that's one of the reasons why we have so much division and polarization in our societies, that we are being fed uh, more and more excitable and angry content because the algorithm tests and guesses that that's what we're going to want to see, or anyway, that's what's going to keep us online or keep us using Facebook. Is it accurate? Is that how they work? We do live in a world where many of the systems that determine what we see and give our attention to are learning from our behavior, our preferences, and from the collective behavior of many others, some of whom aren't paying, some of whom have motivated, coordinated campaigns to influence those algorithms, and they're adapting in real time. And so because we've never really faced a situation like this at such scale, people have a lot of concerns about how those algorithms are behaving and what they're doing to society. One of the fundamental challenges that I think scientists are still wrestling with is this challenge of influence. Typically, if a car crashes because there's, say, a faulty drivetrain, we can point to 
the engineering and say there's a problem with this system. With these adaptive systems, they're reacting and learning and responding to human society and human behavior. And we're still developing the scientific tools to understand what it means to have those feedback loops. And in the meantime, we have to live in a world where these things have very real power. If the Facebook algorithm is designed to keep all of us on Facebook as long as possible, who's able to watch that? Who's able to control it? Who's following the science? Almost no one is in a position right now to regulate and manage those algorithms. For example, in February, Facebook announced that they would be reducing the political content appearing in people's news feeds in several countries. We don't really know the details of what they're doing. We also have evidence, because they say they're doing tests, that they're not necessarily sure themselves what the impact is going to be. Uh, when you think about who currently has uh, some power to shape uh, what algorithms do, I think there are some uh, people at different levels of society who, ha who have a little bit of influence. We've seen, for example, European regulators uh, step in around antitrust, around what kinds of products get promoted by search engines, for example. Uh, so governments have been doing a little bit. We definitely have companies themselves are being seen as almost government-like and having policy teams. So they're trying to understand how their own systems work and manage them in some way without the rest of us having that much transparency into their values or goals or even their results. And then in some areas, there are other actors who have power to manage and govern algorithms in a constrained way. So if you've ever been a Facebook group administrator, for example, or you know someone who's a Reddit moderator, they have a little bit of an ability to tweak what gets promoted or how the, a given algorithm works, even though they don't have a lot of visibility into the underlying code or necessarily the power to tell a big company to change what they do. A couple of weeks ago, I had reason to talk to a Facebook spokesman, and the topic was the experiments that Facebook does with its algorithms, um, the way in which they test different things. As you say, they they try and use more or less political content. You know, actually, after the events in, in on January 6th in, in, at the Capitol, they came up with an, an, a way of moderating the news feed so that there wouldn't be so much disinformation in it. But of course, as you say, they don't publish the results of these experiments or of these changes. One of the solutions that I know that you have suggested is that there should be outside moderators or there should be citizen scientists who are studying these algorithms, you know, I, either with the cooperation of Facebook and Google or maybe not with the, their cooperation. What's step one? The place to start is often with your own experience. I'll tell you a story just to illustrate this. About six years ago, I was approached by a group of women who faced online harassment, threats of violence, and other kinds of risks. For them, uh, the first step was to acknowledge that was, it was a problem and to find other people who had the same problem. They were able to realize that they had common needs and common goals, and they actually came up with a way to record their experiences, uh, both the kinds of harassment that they were facing, and also 
to record how Twitter did or often didn't handle their reports. That was the point, actually, that they then reached out to me and said, this is clearly a systemic problem. We've all experienced it. We want to see change. We know that better understanding data and science will help us think of better solutions and also, if necessary, create pressure for those solutions. That was a great moment then for me and the team of researchers I led to develop a methodology and analyze the data they were collecting. And that report that we ended up creating has been influential in industry. It's helped law enforcement understand how to better support people who experience online harassment. And it's also been useful in policy debates in this country about online harassment. We're at a moment where we're still building the lines of communication and the idea of citizen science as a mode of understanding and improving our digital lives. So at this stage, I think the best first step is really to find other people who care about the thing you care about. So we need to identify the problems that have to be studied and we need the labs where they can be studied. That's the first step. Absolutely. There's another important step at the ecosystem level. There's a, a funding challenge. Most of the research that goes into funding that goes into social computing comes from the tech industry, like hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you look at the money that comes into industry independent research, it's a tiny drop in the bucket. So as policymakers debate ideas like taxing tech companies, I could imagine there being funding within that for industry independent accountability research. Uh, we're also finding ourselves having to invent new funding models for this kind of research as well. And then presumably at some point, some regulatory mechanism that makes sure that the internet platforms will work with you and will listen to you. Exactly. So I think we're seeing more and more researchers in this space say that uh, we're going to need some kind of regulation to provide protections and support for independent research uh, to go on even when companies find it uncomfortable. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. One of the crises you know, at the moment in American life is the the fact that a part of the country now lives in a completely alternative universe from the rest of the country. And we all saw on January the 6th that there are people who are so convinced that Donald Trump won the election that they were willing to attack the Capitol and even murder policemen and, and, and others in an attempt to disrupt Congress's work and prevent the naming of, uh, verifying of, of Joe Biden as president. How do you relate that to this problem of algorithms? I mean, if we had if we could solve the algorithm problem, if we if we were able to structure algorithms so that they favored civic discourse and civil conversation instead of promoting division and anger, could that help us heal this this deep divide, this this epistemological divide whereby we all live in different realities? You know, we know that when crowds of people get involved in stuff, that doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome is good or better. So why should we be so sure that citizen participation and the regulation of the internet will give us good regulation? It's important to differentiate between who's making decisions and who's producing evidence. Evidence is something that you can put into the conversation about what to do, And so long as that evidence is produced in a reliable way, it has value to bring to the conversation. So your feeling is that this is a question that's not just important for, I don't know, the future of social media. It's really the question that's important for democracy. Giving that power, giving some of that oversight ability to citizen scientists, to outside groups, maybe to some government ombudsman, maybe to some regulators... Um, that this would democratize that power that social media companies have. Yeah. Uh, One of my personal heroes in the social sciences is Kurt Lewin, one of the founders of social psychology, who himself barely escaped Nazi Germany uh, with his life and went on to influence so much in science and society. And he had this great quote, which says it's essential that a democratic commonwealth and its educational system apply the rational procedures of scientific investigation to its own processes of group living. And Kurt Lewin believed that uh, that needed to be done in a democratic way if we were going to maintain the values that we have as democratic societies, that it wasn't just enough to do research that supported democracy, you needed the research itself to be democratic in nature. And I think in an era where so much of what we do is influenced by design, uh, 
and algorithms, uh, that reality is clearer than it even was in Lewin's time. There's a long tradition of citizen scientists and outsiders working outside the government or sometimes in tandem with the government in order to push regulation in a particular direction. Do you see yourself belonging to that tradition? And can you describe it a little bit? You're asking me a question about something that I absolutely love and obsessed by. So thank <laughs> you for that question. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I grew up uh, you know, in the United States as a Guatemalan American with this sense that science was this tool of like powerful people in institutions that didn't always include or pay attention to the general public or the marginalized as anything other than research participants. Like you can be a, a subject in the research and we will call you a subject. But when I was a graduate student at the MIT Media Lab, I started to learn about this amazing tradition of citizen science in different places and times over the last really 200 years. In the mid 19th century, there was a group of people who went around London and bought bread from different shops and used this new idea of a microscope to count what was actually in the bread and found widespread food adulteration. Uh, this set of studies ended up helping launch the trajectory of what is now The Lancet, one of the premier medical journals in the world. Another example I really love is the story of the Good Housekeeping Labs, which was started just around the turn of the century. Uh, people were concerned about what was in their food, what was in other products. This was before the creation of the FDA. There really wasn't that much regulation of what went into the you know, mass production ecosystem. And so people subscribed to Good Housekeeping. Those labs would test common products and tell people if they were safe or not, and use the good housekeeping seal of approval. And often, in fact, in the late 19th, early 20th century, because there was this convergence of the rising women's movement and a passion for science, you would have women's organizations actually leading a lot of citizen science efforts. And then later on, when the US established the FDA, it was actually the scientists from the Good Housekeeping Lab that built up the FDA's initial scientific capacities and leading us to, to where we are today, where we have more organized and supported regimes of testing and science and, and regulation. So and you think that's how algorithm regulation or social media regulation could evolve with teams of citizen scientists like the people at your lab or is the idea that eventually this is something the government would do? Or is this something that will some other kind of civic body will do? Do you have a kind of trajectory of how this could work in the long term? In the short term, citizen science and work from the outside is a necessity. We're currently at a, at a moment where if you want to look at what tech companies are doing from the inside, you have to sign these NDAs you have to do work that they feel comfortable with. And like many other citizen scientists uh, in other domains, we find ourselves inventing methodologies to answer urgent questions that people need to understand now. 
And I think, you know, we, we have a, a small but growing number of institutions that are starting to do that work. The Barkup, Consumer Reports Digital Labs has been building a team. There are initiatives like Joy Buolamwini's Algorithmic Justice League that all do work of this kind. In the longer term, I would love to see a healthy ecosystem. I draw a lot of inspiration from the work of Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel Prize winning political scientist who wrote about how you incorporate science into complex governance scenarios where you have competing interests. I, I think we're likely, I hope, in the long term to get to a point where companies are going to be more transparent. They're going to actually publish their protocols and research on the issues we care about. And that's going to be an important part. I think we really desperately need more government-supported efforts. And I'll leave it to the policymakers to figure out what that actually looks like. And I think we'll continue to see citizen scientists trying to make sense of and improve their own context and environment, just like we have in the arena of environmental protection, consumer protection. Those are all mature ecosystems where you have science happening from different perspectives and different points uh, in the ecosystem. Right. So it's not just government scientists. There are also independent scientists and there's the Sierra Club and there are individuals and there are you know, so there, there, there are lots of different perspectives on the same environmental problem. And you imagine that that would eventually be possible in, in monitoring and regulating the social media companies too. Exactly. In a democracy, we hope that having multiple perspectives helps us get to a better solution. At least that's, that's the vision of democracy I want, I want to cling to in how I uh, imagine the work. And so I think we need that for governing social media, for governing the role of digital technologies in our lives. And we have a lot of work to build up the industry independent part of that ecosystem. Uh, Nathan, I know that you started your education in the humanities and you moved later on to technology. Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened? How does a, an English major become part of this other world? When I was a teenager, I had this amazing opportunity to meet with and talk to a local computer science professor. I was really passionate about the arts. I was really passionate about computing. And he said, you know, computing is a lens on the world. If you really care about understanding technology, you need to understand society. You need to pay close attention to the world around you because computing without that has no heart. It has no moral compass. With his encouragement, I felt empowered and prompted to spend my undergraduate time reading literature, studying the humanities, asking myself the big questions. It was really during my second undergraduate degree when I was a student at Cambridge University that I started to ask questions about literature and what we read and its impact on democracy, its impact and connections to psychology. I realized that not only were we collecting massive amounts of data about human experience and behavior that could help us answer some of those questions, I also realized that 
those enduring questions about what it means to live well together in society that we've been asking as long as we've had written records are incredibly important to the present time. And that's what led me to actually go back to grad school and uh, study those questions further. And those aren't questions that are normally asked in Silicon Valley, presumably. I don't know if I can speak for for all of Silicon (laughs) Valley, Um, but I do think that, I think we often hear technologists say, we couldn't have known. And I can't really tell whether that's true or whether it's a rhetorical line to take. Because the reality is that companies have built some of the world's most sophisticated social scientific research endeavors in the history of humanity. And the idea that they haven't turned those lenses on questions impacting the common good is just unimaginably astonishing. That it's a scandal if they haven't asked the question, it's a scandal if they've asked it and they're not telling us what they found. I want to live in a world where digital power is both guided by evidence and accountable to the public. And so I'm very dissatisfied when people tell me they haven't asked the question before. Nathan, what are a few things that you could ask our podcast listeners to do to help solve this problem themselves? So are there books you think they should read? Are there you know, things they should watch to get a better understanding of these ideas? Are there organizations you can suggest they be involved with, things they can do? Yeah, first, there are some organizations that are building up this kind of work. Uh, You can join, subscribe, or give to organizations like The Markup, like Consumer Reports, the Algorithmic Justice League, or the Citizens and Technology Lab, which I lead. In addition to that, look out for opportunities to participate in research. CatLab will be announcing some new studies later this year. Many other researchers, some of whom I've mentioned, will announce public calls asking people, sign up and help us measure or test a new idea. For example, the Mozilla Foundation, who run the Firefox browser, have a volunteer program for people to sign up and collectively monitor what kinds of recommendations YouTube is making about the role of that algorithm in our lives. That was Nathan Matias, who leads Cornell University's Citizens and Technology Lab. We'll include links to his suggestions for ways that you can get involved with evaluating algorithms and improving the social media ecosystem. This was the last episode of our mini-series about dealing with the problem of political polarization. I'd urge you to go back and listen to previous episodes with Eli Pariser, with former President Juan Manuel Santos of Colombia, and of course, my co-host, Ann Applebaum, who you've just been hearing from. When you listen to them, I think you'll come away with an understanding that polarization doesn't have to keep getting worse. It's not a one-way street, and there are societies we can point to where it has gotten better. But to diminish polarization, we need to address factors propelling it in technology, media, and politics. Next week on Solvable, we'll talk with Catherine Coleman-Flowers. She's the founder and director of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. We'll discuss how poor sanitation in America is solvable 
Yes, it's still a problem here in the United States. I hope you'll join us. Solvable senior producer is Jocelyn Frank. Research and booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing producer is Catherine Girardot. Mia Lobel is the executive producer of Pushkin Podcast. Solvable is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us. It really helps to get the word out. You can find Pushkin Podcast wherever you listen, including on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.